Claudia Leslie Wells was a single woman living in Maryville, Illinois. She was supposed to be taking care of her mother who had recently broken her hip. But sometime in the middle of January 1995, Claudia left, not letting anyone know where she was going. She was never seen. Actually, she was seen again. I'm Ed Denzel, and this is Unfound. a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Do those words seem familiar to you? They should. They come from a very popular movie. Those words were in a letter that Andy Dufresne sent to his friend Red in the film The Shawshank Redemption. Ah, now you remember. Andy, played by Tim Robbins, and Red, played by Morgan Freeman, throughout the movie, they had vastly different views on the concept of hope. And in fact, Red called it a dangerous thing. We use the word hope on unfound quite a bit. I use it. My guests use it. If you go to the unfound podcast discussion group, you'll see listeners using it. I see the word hope in a lot of the emails that I receive. But still, covering missing persons cases can be an emotionally difficult pursuit. Statistically, we know most of the people we've covered on Unfound are deceased. And for many of the guests we've had on the program, odds are only a few of them will get the answers they're looking for. But I think this episode is different. I hope... This episode will give you hope. And now a summary of the case. Actually, there's not going to be a summary for this case. Mainly because during my preparation for this episode, I discovered that there were a couple key pieces of information that are incorrect on the public record. So if you've been to a couple websites reading about this case, I can almost assure you that what you read was wrong specifically where Claudia was last seen and why she was there. Because websites have gotten it wrong, and in fact, a recent show has gotten it wrong as well. Instead, what I'm going to do is allow Robin, Claudia's daughter, who is the interview for this episode, to explain those inaccuracies and how they might have come about in the first place. Unfound News. Mark the date. May 9th, 2017, 6 p.m., the Badir Beach Library. It's going to be the first unfound meetup. Well, technically, that's not what it is. Really, I just haven't come up with a name for it yet. But I'm hoping to bring together a group of Pinellas County residents to start working on some unsolved missing persons cases in this area. Actually, some of these cases go back to the 1960s. I'm hoping to put citizen journalism and crowdsourcing to work. If you live in the area, I'd love for you to join us. If you don't live in the area, I will keep all of you updated on our progress. Next, the verdict is in. The people have spoken. Listeners have decided that Jeff Wantich's story regarding the disappearances of David Medot 
Kent Monroe and Omar Shearer isn't the truth. Although it should be known that the listeners believe what happened out there in the Gulf was an accident, not on purpose. If you still haven't voted, I'd still like to hear your opinion on the topic. Finally, some of you have requested putting Unfound on YouTube. I want you to know that it is something I'll continue to consider. The big issue is the upload time and my internet service, which can be sketchy on this island where I live, Madeira Beach. But I thank all of you who want to get Unfound heard and seen in as many places as possible. Where you can find Unfound. On Twitter, at Unfound Podcast. Instagram, also at Unfound Podcast. Join us on Facebook, the Unfound Podcast Discussion Group. You can interact with the guests and other listeners in a very civil and trollless atmosphere. You can email the show, unfoundpodcast at gmail.com. And finally, please continue to mention Unfound at all of the true crime forums you visit, including Web Sleuths, Reddit, and podcasts we listen to. I'm so happy to have on this episode of Unfound, Robin Wells Burton, the daughter of Claudia Leslie Wells. Robin, welcome to Unfound. Thank you for having me today. Robin, tell the listeners a little bit about your mother and growing up with her. What can you tell the listeners? Um, My mom um, had me at the age of uh, 17. Um, I came from a religious family. Um, I never knew who my real father was. Um, I still don't to this day. Um, My mom, um, whenever I was two years old, my mom had went to my grandparents and asked my grandparents um, if they would um, adopt me. I think that she knew that was the best thing for me, and she wanted to make sure I was in a safe environment. Um, Whenever my grandparents adopted me, my grandfather told her if she ever straightened up, she could always have me back. Um, This is when my mother started leaving. Um, She would leave. She would go. um, She used to go to Scottsdale, Arizona as a kid growing up, um, and as well as other places around the United States. Then some I'm aware of, some I'm not. But she was just, she would come in and out of my life. She'd be gone for a year or two, and she would come home for two or three months. Each time my mother left, she left with the clothes on her back, leaving all of her personal items at home. Um, as a child growing up, um, I thought my mom was living the life of the rich and famous. I had absolutely no idea that my mom suffered a mental illness. My mom is paranoid schizophrenic. Um, back then, um, and even, even in today's society, and it's just it's a sad situation, a lot of times those illnesses are swept underneath the rug. Um, families don't want anybody to know that their, their child is mentally ill. You have the mentally ill that doesn't want to let anybody know that they're mentally ill because of the stigma that that's placed on them. Um, so I didn't know for many, many years. My grandparents thought it was best to protect me from her illness. Um, I was angry when I very first found out, and I wanted to know why I wasn't educated. And it took me a while, and I realized, how can I be angry at them when they weren't educated themselves? Back yeah. then, when my mom would come home, she would have shock treatment done. We know now that that, that, that wasn't a good thing. Back then, we, they thought that that was a good thing. Um, she would be in the hospital, and I, you know, I wouldn't know why. I just thought that she was sick. They didn't know ever. Well, the last time I had seen my mother... I was 23 years old, and it was Christmas night. Um, 
my mother, let me go back a little bit. I'm sorry. Um, my mother came home. My grandmother had fallen and broken her hip and she was placed into a nursing home. Um, my mother um, came back and helped my grandmother through rehabilitation. And she took my mother and moved in with her. Um, they got an apartment together in Maryville, Illinois. Um, my mom did a great job on taking care of my grandmother, but my grandma also had to have 24 hour care. Um, uh, I, I was, I went home. I lived in Cape Dreda, Missouri at the time and I came home for Christmas. I had left Christmas night to, to return back to my home. Um, but I'd seen the last time I'd seen my mother was Christmas night. Um, after returning home, I'd called my mother on the phone a few days later telling her that how happy I was that she was taking care of grandma. Um, but the grandma had to have 24 hour care. And that if she decided to leave again, that was fine. And I understood, but she can't just leave without telling someone she had to call and let me know, she, tell me where she was going. But she had to tell me that, uh, my grandma, that she was leaving my grandma because my grandma had to have 24 hour care. And she agreed. Um, two weeks later, my mother left without telling me that my mom, that my, I'm sorry, my mother left, not telling me that my grandma was home by herself. Um, so she did I, something you you told her explicitly not to do. Yes, and I've never, unfortunately, I've never had a conversation like that with my mom. It was a good conversation, but I was very upfront and told her that if something happened to my grandmother um, and she didn't tell me that she left, that I would never speak to her again. Mm. Um, I've never said those words to my mother in my whole entire life. And what year was that? And how old were you? What year was that? I was 23 years old, and it was probably late December or early of January. It was either late December of 1994 or early January of 95. My mom went missing the middle of January 1995. Okay. Can I ask you a question about when she gave you up to your grandparents? Do you think that that was an acknowledgement that she knew that maybe she had a problem that maybe was going to affect her more as you got older. How do you look back at that? Yes, I do. I think that, um, that she was just, she, she was afraid, um, for my safety. I think that she was, she wanted to make sure that somebody in my family, uh, took care of me. She didn't want to see me adopted out. She wanted to make sure it was a family adoption. I think that she did the best that she could. Mm -hmm. And so she thought that, she maybe felt something coming on, and so she thought, you know what, I need to allow her parents, your grandparents, uh, to take care of you, to raise you. Absolutely. Because she thought that was in your best interest. Yes. Oh, okay. Um, and those times that she would come home and she left and your grandparents are raising you, did the grandparents ever ask her about, you know, where she was going? You said about her going to Arizona, but you were the under the impression that, you know, she was going to Hollywood living this, you know, this glamorous life. Of course, you were just a young child at the time. Did anybody ever try to get her to stay or, or anything like that? Um, absolutely. Um, every time that she came home, um, she was home for good. And I was the only one. I was very resentful towards my mother. I just, um, even though, even though I was never mean to my mother, um, I just always knew in my mind that she was going to be gone again. I think I put up this wall to protect myself because I knew it was just a matter of time that she would leave again, that she hadn't straightened up. Um, and each time I was right, I, you know, I'd be like to myself, I knew she would leave. I just knew she would be gone. And, you know, as a child, 
because you don't understand because nobody has uh, educated you. Sure. you know, I didn't know that she was sick. I just, I just thought that she was leaving. Um, there was a time that she took, uh, after my grandfather died, whenever I was uh, eight years old, it was in 1979, and my mother found out, and about a month or two after my grandfather had passed away, my mother had sent um, round-trip plane tickets to uh, Los Angeles, California, to, for me and my grandmother to fly out. Um, when she picked us up from the airport, she had a dozen roses for my grandmother, a great big three-foot stuffed animal dog for me. Um, we got in a taxi cab. She took us to the mall. It was the first place she took us. She bought both of us brand-new wardrobes. We were staying in Hollywood, California at a motel that was costing $100 a night. Back in 1979, that was, that's a lot of money. It's a big deal. Um, yes, yeah, so that's a very big deal. Um, I remember her taking me to Disneyland while I was out there. She was giving me $20 a day in allowance. I, I was a rich kid, you know. Mm -hmm. um, she told me at the time she was writing songs for Willie Nelson um, about my grandfather. I know now that that's not true. Where, where she got this money, I still have no idea. But it was just, where, you know, once again, I thought that she was living the life of the rich and famous, and the, these are the reasons why. And so now today, you're still, on this day in March of 2017, all these years later, you still have no idea where she got that money, what she was doing back then. That's, that's right? Right. Um, Correct. Okay. That's interesting. Um, hmm. Yes. Um, I remember one time I was in second grade, and um, the MPs came to my classroom with my principal. My mother had uh, went into the military and went AWOL, but she had went into the military under her sister's name. Huh. And when she when she went AWOL, they came here to actually uh, arrest her sister, and her sister had to explain to her, you know, I, I never went in the military, and come to find out it was my mom. Um, so she was, um, she got a discharge from the Army. Um, so my mom was never a veteran. My mom was, um, there was, when, she, when my mom actually went mi missing again in 1998, it says that she was a veteran going to the VA. She was never a veteran. Right. We need to correct the record on that because I've read that in a few different places that are very reputable missing persons uh, websites. And I've read that a couple places. That is not yes. that's that's not true. She was never a veteran. What status Absolutely. then did she have? She used somebody's ID to try to get into the military, or how did that all work? Explain that uh, again if you could. I, well, my mom um, used to. Uh, used to uh, get fake driver's license. I mean, they were real. Um, I remember a time whenever I was growing up where she went to the Christian bookstore and got uh, and, and, and got a baptism record and then went to the library and pulled up somebody that had died at that, at, you know, at birth. And she would get all this information and she'd go to the driver's license bureau and get her face with somebody else's name. So I think that with her and her sister being so close in age, she already knew her sister's information. She just said that she lost her driver's license, is what I would is what I would say. Okay, that's interesting. Your mother sounds like a very interesting and intelligent person. Um, she is. She has a very very high IQ. Yeah. Um, never in a million years would I ever think that my mother was homeless. Um, it, I was thirty four years old when my mom's sister set me down and told me that my mom was paranoid schizophrenic. I didn't have any idea, and I think she was shocked. Um, I don't know, you know, how how the wires got crossed, but she was like, 
I know that you knew you just chose not to know. And I said, no, I never knew that. Nobody ever told me that. And that was the very first time that I realized that my mom was paranoid schizophrenic. It was 11 years after she had went missing. Um, that's whenever I start the search for my mom began. Um, I didn't and you know, and that's mom. not, and that's not that long ago. You're not that old. You said 34 years old. You're not much older than that now. So that was a fairly recent development in your life to find that out. Um, it was about 11 years. I'm 46 now. So it was about 11 years ago. Still, you lived three fourths yes. of your life thinking yes. that something else. Yes. Yes. So I grew up hating my mother. I thought that my mom was living the life of the rich and famous. I had no idea that my mom was paranoid schizophrenic. Um, whenever I realized the truth, everything started making sense. Um, mm. And I just started searching the web. And um, I started a Facebook page. And then my niece got a hold of me. And she said, she said, Robin, she said, I don't know how we missed this. She said, but she said, I just got on NamUs and I've put her name in there before nothing's popped up she said that you need to look at this and she sends me a link to name us of a woman that, that had went missing out of california in 1998 three years after she had left home um the woman's name on her name was leslie c wells the birthday was off by a little bit there was no photo but something in my gut just told me it's her i know that this is her i contacted the san diego um missing persons unit and and they told me that uh they actually had just put that up on NamUs a couple of months ago, that they actually have a picture of her that they had not put on NamUs yet. It was in her file, um, and they wanted to know, um, they wanted me to send pictures of to them first to see if, there was, if this was the same person. Then they sent me her picture back, and I knew immediately when I opened up the picture that it was her. Um, she'd only been missing for three years at that time. And what year What year did you find this out, This that she turned up in this database? What year was that that you um, found out? I want to say 2005, maybe 2006. All right, so you went, um, so this was like eight years after she'd have been put in this database then. Right. Wow. Right, but they didn't put her in. They just they had just recently put her in, they said. Oh. So I don't know why they waited so long, but they had okay. just recently put her in to name us. And what did um, you think was going on all those years? Just to remind the listeners, the last time that you saw your mother was approximately early 1995 then now then you find out like 10 years later that she popped up in the san diego area in 1998 what what did you think was going on in those 10 years did you just think she just left and just never came back and you'd never see her again yes that's what you thought i just well i just i just thought that i thought that i would see her again but so many years had passed that now i was worried because she had never been gone this long Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was a lot different than before, um, and I just I started researching. We started finding things, and uh, and even even whenever I found um, where she went missing in 1998, um, I I got the police report, and she went missing from a homeless shelter. But for for even for even years after that, when I found this, I thought it was a battered women's shelter. I don't know why I thought that. I just, I just did. I don't know if I was told that or, or I just thought that. And so I'm kind of kicked myself in the butt because I feel like I've been looking in all the wrong places. But I got the police report from San Diego. And whenever they go into the shelters, well, at least that particular shelter, they take a picture of each individual. Um, if they come in there with medication, they write down the medications and their doctors. And they also get them to fill out an emergency contact form 
Well, my mother had put me down as her daughter on the emergency contact form. She had put me down living overseas and she did not have a number for me. Um, she, um, she was off one year on my birthday. Um, but I think that what caught my eye on the, this report was the medications um, of the doctors and it had the doctors listed and these were doctors from Granite City, Illinois, which is about 10 minutes from my hometown. So my mom had been back here. She didn't carry that medicine around for three years. She had come back. And I think that when she came back, she didn't know where anybody was. Pretty much everybody moved away. And she went to the funeral. I think that she, I, I personally believe that she went to the graveyard where my grandfather is buried. My grandfather and grandmother have a plot together. And whenever she went to the graveyard, she seen that my grandmother had passed away. Um, my grandmother, by the way, passed away six weeks after my mom went missing. Mm. So I lost two very significant people in my life within six weeks of one another. Um, I believe that my mother's scene when my, you know, on the grave where my grandma passed away and it was so close to the time that she left in my mother's mind. I don't know how true this is, but my mother's mind, I believe she thinks that she's responsible for my, my grandmother's death. And I believe that she thinks that we blame her for that which is so untrue. I mean, she had nothing to do with my grandmother's death. No matter of fact, my grandmother died in my home. My grandmother had been very sick. Just so the listeners understand, what you're saying is that she left early 95. She might have gone to California and then come back to the Illinois area to get these prescriptions filled. You don't even know that she's there and then goes back to California. So, you know, that's quite a bit of distance to travel, well, maybe. I don't know if she. I don't know if she went to California the first time. Okay. Um, this was this was all in the in the police report in '98. Okay. Um, so I know that she'd been back in this area where she went when she left here in '95. Mm-hmm. I have no idea. No idea. But we just know that she ended up in California in '98. And in 1998, they had the me- the medicines listed on mm-hmm. the police report with the doctors. So that tells me that she had been back in this area after she went missing from here mm-hmm. in '95. Do you understand now? Yes, I do. Yes, thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, um, so you found out about her when you they finally sat you, to put it in your words, sat you down to tell you that she had paranoid schizophrenia. That happened around the same time that her name was discovered in this database and around 2005. Those happened very close to each other? Yes, in, in they the happened t- within months. Wow, that's... Within months, maybe weeks. That's very interesting. Very, very yes. That had to be another, I mean, besides your mother disappearing, your grandmother dying six weeks later, I mean, obviously a horrible time in your life. But then 10 years later, to have those two things happen so close to each other, they must have been really been an eye-opener for you. Oh, it was a very big eye-opener. Um, I, that's whenever I really just started searching for my mom, and I never, ever gave up on the search. Um, at this point, I still don't realized that my mom was in a homeless shelter. I didn't realize that that was a homeless shelter that she went missing from. Um, so at this point, I still don't realize that my mom was homeless. Mm-hmm. Um, then in 2000, December of 2014, I get a phone call from... Well, let's go back uh, for a second. Let's try okay, something. Sorry. This 2005, you find us. Take, take the listeners from 2005 up into 2014. What were you doing in that time... Were you trying to find her? I know that we're going to get to the the really uh, the recent stuff, but in those like eight nine years, what were you doing? 
Um, I had set up a Facebook page. Um, I was frantically searching. I never, I never stopped searching. Mm-hmm. Once I started my search in 2005, I never stopped searching for her. Um, I was on radio, t- um, these the blog talk shows like we're doing now. Mm-hmm. I was on some of those. This was way before the picture was discovered. Okay. Um, um, we already had a group called uh, uh, Leslie Wills Private Investigations. It was a private group on Facebook where all of us was searching for her. Um, in December 2014, I received a phone call from uh, our, my private investigator that has been working on this case for a few years now at this point. And he tells me, he said, Robin, I don't know how we missed this, but your mom's social security number was used in a homeless shelter in January of 2013 in Santa Monica, California. So he was, so you didn't find this out until over a year after she'd actually used it. But still, it's great information, but it was oh, a little while. Almost two years. It was almost, almost two, almost years, two years. Okay, almost two years. Yes. Um, this was January 2013. I find out in December 2014. Um, I didn't think too much about it. We've been on wild goose chases before. We have found her name and stuff, and it was years later. Um, I did tell a customer of mine um, about it. Well, I didn't know it, but he goes home and he starts Googling that area. Two days later, calls me on the phone. He said, Robin, I need your email address. He said, there's something that you really need to look at. And I give him my email address, and he sends me an article. And the article is a February 2014 article from the L.A. Times talking about our homeless count on Skid Row, which is in Los Angeles. Um, there was one picture um, that they had put on the front of, front of this article, and that picture was of my mom. I knew immediately. I sent the pictures to her sisters. Um, they didn't think it was her, and I just said, I know it's her. I know it's her. I just, I just knew. Um, the very next day I put this picture on a flyer. Um, my family was pretty upset at the time. Um, they, they didn't, they hated the picture. They wanted it off the flyers. Um, they felt sorry for this woman. I said, well, if it's not my mom, it's somebody's missing mother. It's somebody, someone. Mm-hmm. And, and until, and until that woman comes forward and says that it's her, it, this will always be my mother. I just, I just knew there was something about her eyes. Her eyes don't change. Your eyes don't change. And I just knew it was her. Um, it wasn't until Monday I was able to get a hold of the LA Times. And they gave me the confirmation I needed. Even though my mom used an, a different alias because she's known to use thousands of aliases. Um, she used the name Diane Madago. I just knew it wasn't Diane Madago. Um, I also had a friend of mine who works for the police station run Diane Madago. And there is a Diane Madago in California that is transit. Um, but I, I received a picture of her and it is not my mother. It is not the lady in the photograph in the LA times as well. Um, so on Monday I get a hold of the photographer from the LA times and he tells me that, that even though it was in a 2014 article, even though it said Skid Row, which is in Los Angeles, that actual photograph, was taken during the homeless count in January 2013 in Santa Monica, California, the same year and month and city that my mom's social security number was used at a homeless shelter. That had to be uh, a very powerful moment for you, Robin. Absolutely. Absolutely. I knew. I, I already, it was my confirmation that I needed. It didn't matter at this point if nobody believed me or not. At this point, I knew I was right. Um, and 
working with the homeless now, um, I will tell you right now, they age so fast on those streets. And people don't look like they looked 20 years ago. And yeah. if you're out on the streets, they look even older. Yeah. You know, the, they're sure. weathered. And, and it's just, it's a sad situation. Um, never in a million years did I ever think my mom was homeless. So this was a really big deal for me. Um, I didn't have the funds to go. And Stephanie Copeland from uh, Media of the Missing, she's out of Kansas, um, she started, she said she'd never done this before. She said but she just knew that she was supposed to take me to go to go find my mom. And she said that she started going into businesses and a car rental place um, gave us a van for three weeks. Um, every restaurant that she would go in and tell our story, um, they started giving her food vouchers for us in California. It was food vouchers from Denny's and Burger King and Sonic. Um, people were donating gas cards. Um, the news, whenever we found out that we were going, um, the news came here the day before we left, and we started GoFundMe account. People just started helping us where, where we could fund the trip. Well, I'm going to California, and I know I'm going to see my mom. Let me tell you something, the shock of my life. I knew about homeless, but I didn't really know about homeless. And the first day that when we arrived, um, we were supposed to meet CNN out on Skid Row. Um, the reason that we went to Skid Row first was because there were sightings of her coming out of Skid Row. Um, Officer Deanne Joseph, who uh, who runs um, Skid Row, um, he had told us of sightings that were coming out of there. Mm -hmm. So we, we hit Skid Row first with CNN following us around. Um, I, I realized a lot of things very quickly. One was that they did not like the cameras. The homeless did not like the cameras. And they were very, very angry. Um, then, then Stephanie was on the front, was on the phone with Maureen, who is um, over Namus, and she says, "Maureen, I'm telling you right now, um, one fourth of our missing is out here living homeless." And as soon as she said that, I looked around and I said, "Oh my God, she's right. She's absolutely right." Um, we stayed in California for three weeks, searching our homeless communities. Um, just to just to help the listeners out, but this is essentially like two years since her photo, her picture had been taken there, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So I'm searching throughout the homeless communities, and I can't find her. I can't find her anywhere. Um, we set out on Skid Row one day um, with an outreach group. Um, then we also fed in Santa Monica. We did a candlelight vigil in Santa Monica. Um, I talked to many homeless. I became friends with the homeless. Um, Skid Row has my heart. Skid Row absolutely has my heart. But so many people um, throughout the homeless community wanted to help find her and said that they wished that there was somebody out there looking for them. Mm -hmm. And and um, it was just a very emotional time. And I remember v being very angry at God. And I remember saying, how can you send me a photograph after two decades, 20 years I haven't seen my mom 20 years and I come out to California and I can't find her. Everything happens for a reason, but God, I don't understand this reason. And I'm crying. I'm, I'm angry and I don't understand. And I'm back home. And it's about six weeks later. And it was just like, it hit me all of a sudden. And I realized that there's other family. There has to be other families out there just like me. I know that there's other families. And I decided, decided to start missing homeless. And, um, I started asking some very 
um, dear friends, um, and they're, they're from all over. They're from all over the United States. Um, matter of fact, I even have one that's in the UK, and there's seven of us over missing homeless. And I asked them if they could help me with this page. And um, never in a million years when I started missing homeless did I realize it was going to grow like it did. We've got... Let's, um, let's get back to... Uh, we're going to get into that. I want to get back to talking about your mother in particular for a little bit. Did okay. you... Um, did you run into any homeless when you were there who knew your mother? Yes. They had met uh, her or, sat, or been there with her? Or... Yes. Um, in Santa Monica, um, not, not so much in L.A., um, but in Santa Monica. Santa Monica is where um, everybody knew her. Um, I had a shirt on that had her picture on it. Um, and I, whenever I was walking through Santa Monica, I had a homeless guy point at me and said, Oh, my God, that's Diane. And that's also the same name that she used in the LA Times. And I had another gentleman tell me that she's still around, that um, that I will find her, that um, the homeless go up and down the coast. And also in the wintertime, they may even go back and forth from Arizona because Arizona, it's a lot warmer than it is in California in the winter. And, and they, they just, they, they go back and forth like that. And they also go up and down the coast, but she was out there. Um, but I've heard a lot of things about her. I heard that, um, that, that the homeless community called her ma. A lot of the young kids called her ma that was homeless on the streets, um, that she lived at McDonald's. I know that she, uh, took the bus a lot for transportation and that she's always at the stops. Um, I know that she used to take the bus in the wintertime to stay warm. Um, I know that, uh, in the LA Times photo, she was in a wheelchair. I didn't know if she was in a wheelchair because... She had problems walking now and has a medical condition, or if she was in a wheelchair for panhandling purposes because it was easier to get money. I, I, did, I don't know that still to this day. Um, and mm. when was the last time that when you were down there in early 2015? When was the last time that somebody had seen her in that area? How much how much time did you miss her by? Do you happen to remember that? I think that I missed her by months. Uh, it could have been longer. Um, I just think that I missed her by months. Mm -hmm. You told me something very, also very interesting. You, um, when CNN was there, that the homeless wouldn't talk to you. They didn't. They didn't yes. want the cameras around and everything. And you told me also about CBS and and all of that. You know, covering it as well. But as soon as those TV people went away, you came back. The homeless people couldn't have been nicer to you. Absolutely. Yes. Um, whenever I went down there, CNN was down there and the homeless doesn't, did not like the cameras at all. They didn't want anything to do with us. They didn't want the cameras there. They wanted the cameras off of them. Um, I got very scared very quickly. Um, uh, and I think that CNN made me scared because they wanted us out of there. They've already, they've already got their, their story. Um, they want us out of there. Um, we get back to the van. We're, we're waiting on CBS because CBS was supposed to meet us there, um, there shortly. Um, CNN tells us that CBS just called them and they were affiliated and CBS and they gave CBS the story. So, so CNN was going to get the story that CBS just told us to get out of there because they are worried for our safety. We, we leave Skid Row. Um, at this point I'm crying. I'm, I'm completely freaked out. Um, CBS calls on the phone and wants to know where, the, where we're at. And I tell them that CNN just got off, just told us that 
that um, for us to leave that you guys said that you were giving them the story. They told us that CNN lied for us to turn around. I told them that it wasn't turn around. I, I couldn't go back. I couldn't do an interview today. They told me that if I did not do an interview with them today, they would not interview me in the future. And they were they kept their word because they never interviewed me. Um, I went back to California again in October of 2015, so about six or seven months later, and CNN interviewed me a second time, and neither story has ever aired. I think that they're waiting on a reunion story. I'm not really sure, but neither story has ever aired, and that's why I needed the most because she could be anywhere in the United States. Does that disgust you a little bit? Oh, absolutely. It disgusts me. You know, um, if you're waiting on a reunion story, they're not going to get it. I promise. I don't care if it is CNN. Um, I just, it, it aggravates me a lot as you want a reunion story. Why didn't you put it up when she's, when she's missing where, where I might have a chance of finding her. I think that I had a, a huge chance of finding her if they had have ran that story, but but it, they didn't. I mean, not only did they interview me once, they interviewed me twice, and neither story was ever put on air. Hmm. And I guess the interesting thing here is that, you know, you say that you missed your, your mother there in the Skid Road area by months. To your knowledge, has she ever come back to that area since you were down there that first time? Not to my knowledge. Um, I do go to Santa Monica every time I go to California. I've been to California about... Um, five times probably in the last two years. Um, we have an outreach in California now, um, a street outreach um, called Missing Homeless Feed the Need. Um, but I have been in the area many times. Um, as a matter of fact, they still pass out flyers in the area. Um, in L.A., every time they feed, they pass out flyers. Um, people that I have friends that go to Santa Monica that still pass out flyers, but I haven't heard anything. What do you, what do you think of that, Robin? What do you think? You think she's um, moved on or, or, or what? I think that she's moved on. I also know, though, that the homeless community is a very tight-knit community. Um, they look out for each other. They're very closed-mouthed. Um, uh, so there could be a, a different, you know, a bunch of different things, but I think that she's not in the area anymore um, because other people would have seen her as well. Could it be that she was scared off hearing about CNN and everybody being down there, maybe not realizing Absolutely. that you were there, but she might have been somewhere else and found out about the cameras being there and she got out? Because I think this will lead into yes. a, 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 a interesting discussion about just the overall um, qualities of paranoid schizophrenia, which is something I want to talk to you about because I know you've learned quite a bit about it. But just that question, do you think she hasn't been back because of February oh, 2015. Absolutely. Um, I could be wrong, but I don't think that there's any doubt in my mind that my mom is, that knows that she, I really believe that my mom knows I'm looking for her. I think that my mom is scared. Um, in her mind, she thinks that people are after her, including the ones that love her the most. Um, and it's just, it's not true, but it's the mind of a schizophrenic. I mean, um, you have to get, get in there and, you know, to just to read about it, um, it was just so shocking to me whenever I just started educating myself with the disease and just seeing everything that, oh my gosh, this is my mom. And um, very angry at myself um, for not knowing and for thinking the worst, thinking that she was living the life of the rich and famous all these years. And that's not true at all. I think that my mom has lived on and off the grid um, most of her life. Mm -hmm. Most of her life. Um, I just, I don't know. Um, it's just, it's a hard situation. Um, we still get, to this day, I still get um, 
sightings coming in. We had a sighting come in um, out of Arizona. Um, that a lady said that um, there was a woman that comes to the bus stop um, in Tucson, Arizona, every morning, and she was in a wheelchair. And the woman had got a car, so she could put right in the bus. And when she seen my mother's flyer, she went back to the bus to bus stop and my mom's no longer there she hasn't seen her um then i got another sighting out of um dallas texas of three or four weeks ago where a woman claims that she has seen my mom at a bus stop again and um at the bus stop that she's never actually seen her get on the bus that she's gained a lot of weight and that her legs needed medical attention um and that that she said that she there was something that she wanted to tell me that this woman cries all the time, and I think that the Dallas sighting has bothered me more than any other sighting because I'm talking about it today and I talked about it a little bit a couple of weeks ago with someone else, um, but I I never really let it out before. Um, but the reason that that sighting bothers me is uh, it could be just one one heck of a coincidence, or this is her. Um, the woman told told me that she knows it's my mom. I asked her how she knows, and she said, because I've sat by her for the last couple of months, and I know her features. I'm telling you, this is your mother. Um, she told me that uh, this woman cries all the time and talks to herself, and she feels sorry for her, and that the woman always talks about her mother and how she blames herself for her mother's death and how she, that she thinks that her family also blames her for her mother's death, and that's the whole reason that I think that my mother never came back. I think that, that when she came back and seen that my grandmother had passed away she thinks that she had something to do with it which was it's totally not true and so I'm not sure if this lady in Dallas was my mother um there's never been no photo taken of her um the woman's seen her every single day and now she hasn't seen her one time since I don't know if she's moved on someplace else I'm not really sure but I know that she's not in that same area anymore and that was just like four weeks ago but you are you are pretty sure that you, that your mother knows that you're looking for her. Uh, do, you, do I mean, does it get to the point by thinking that that she actually could be avoiding you? Is it could, could that schizophrenia, the paranoid schizophrenia, get that bad that if she knew that you were, if she caught wind that you were going, whether it's to Dallas or Santa Monica, that she might go somewhere else? Is it that? Can it be that bad? It could. It could be that bad. Um, I think that what bothers me more than anything is I never knew that my mom was paranoid schizophrenic. Uh, I don't even know how I missed it. Um, so she was doing very good back then. Um, but as the years pass, you don't take medication. I hear that schizophrenia gets worse. And also, in a lot of in a lot of schizophrenia patients, um, dementia also sets in at a younger age. Um, so it might even be a, a deal where she's kind of lost out there. But I think that in her mind... She thinks that I blame her for my grandmother's death, and that's not true at all. And I think that that's why it's so important for me to find my mom. Um, I would love nothing more for my mom to come back and live with me. I can't make her come back. The laws prohibit that. But and the laws and the HIPAA law prohibits me from telling me if she's in a shelter or telling me that she's in a hospital. But I am going to find her because um, I just know I'm going to find her. I I do something a little different. I know that um, out, street outreaches, they don't have to go by the HIPAA laws. And those those people are our eyes out there on the streets. And those are the people that you need to contact. Those are the people that are going to tell you if they've seen her or not. Um, even if my mom doesn't want to come home, even if my mom doesn't want anything to do with me, 
my mom is going to hear me tell her to her face that I love her. And that's a fact. It, 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 I don't I don't care if it's been 22 years. She will be found. There's no doubt about it mm. in my mind. I mm. will see her again. Yeah. Right. That's good, Robin. And you've turned this into, you know, a mission on your own, not just for yourself, but for other people. And you've touched upon it so far, but let's get a little deeper into that if we could now. Tell the people about Missing and Homeless, what you do, your the team that you have, and some of those success stories they have. Because when you told me about this, uh, it was really amazing to me. Please tell the listeners about that. Um, Missing Homeless was started in April 2015. It was started a month after I got back from um, California. Um, I really realized really quickly that a lot of our homeless were, in fact, missing people. Um, I know that there was a lot of families just like me that might not have reported a missing or they're going to get mad. Um, don't um, afraid that they won't come back. Um, you don't know how many families that have not reported their missing loved ones missing that have mental illness just fear that they're going to make that their family mad at them and they're afraid that they're not going to come back. Um, missing homeless was started and I, there's seven of us. Um, I have Dan Davison, who is a private investigator out of Chicago, Illinois. Um, I have Cameo Smith. She is the niece of missing Lori Partridge who went missing out of the seventies. Um, I have Amy Royal who lives in the Manchester, UK. Um, I have Don Nix. She's out of, um, Florida. I have Mia Torres. She is out of California. I have Dina Rush. She's out of Washington. And all of us bring something to the table. Um, Cameo does all of our updates and runs people to see if social security number has been used. Um, uh, Amy makes all of our flyers for us. Um, Dina, Dina um, helps our missing with starting on like pages to bring more awareness to our, our missing loved ones. Um, Don Nix, she is a advocate, a missing advocate out of Florida. Um, Mia does our street outreach in California, and I just do a little bit of everything. How did you find all these people, Robin? How did you all come together? Um, well, Don Don Nix and Dan Davison has been working with me for a number of years. Um, Don was actually my my advocate. Um, Dan had come aboard a few years ago. Um, a friend introduced me to Dan. And then whenever I went to, then, um, cameo, I'd actually, um, been friends with her on through Facebook with her aunt missing. She actually helped me set up my mom's like page many years ago. Um, whenever I went to California, I met cameo and I also met Mia. Mia was who I got in contact with about feeding with her on Skid Row. Um, so Mia and Cameo became a part of the group. Um, Dan, of, Dan and Don, of course. Um, Amy was just somebody that was on my mom's Facebook page that was talking to me all the time. And I just asked her one day if she would like to become a part of Missing Homeless. She just she was just so good with research and doing flyers and stuff. And then um, Dina, um, Cameo had um, introduced me to Dina because Dina was also an avid advocate that really helped the families with the missing and together we all came together and we're, we're making it work. It's just, it's been amazing. Um, we've got close to 24,000 followers now in less than two years. Um, we have found 44 people um, no, throughout the United States. That's just the one that I want you to say that again for the listeners. 
How many people have you found that were homeless but are now found and reunited with their families in the last two years? How many? 44. That's incredible. Yes. And we found two yesterday. And it's been amazing. And we're just miracle after miracle is being performed through our page. And that's something I can't even wrap my head around. And um, some, you know, it gets the best of you because I'm working on missing homeless and I do street outreach and I, I work full time. And I just think, how am I, how am I, how am I still going? And, and it's whenever the, the, these loved ones get found and it makes it all worth it. And it, and you know why you're there and why God put this in front of you. And, um, I had an amazing, oh, I had two amazing stories yesterday, but I had one that I just feel like God's hands was all over, all over this. I had a man that I met, um, almost two years ago and he was homeless and he was, uh, he was, he was panhandling out by our local Walmart. He was living up underneath the bridge and I had brought him supplies. I took his picture and he told me about his wife and I said, we'd see if we could find her because she, he went to jail and she went to the hospital. Well, um, I, we had serviced him for a while and then we couldn't find him anymore. We didn't see him for quite some time. And then here about two weeks ago, his son contacted our page and said that he had been trying to locate his biological father and he had Googled his name and our site come up and that was his father. And he wanted to know if we knew how to get in touch with him. So it had been a while since I'd seen him, but I would go out and I'd look. I had been up looking for his dad, and I could not find him. And I told him, I said, I can't find him. There's a couple other places I'm going to check, but he's not in the area that he was in. Um, and then yesterday, I got an incredible email from a lady that volunteers for Meals on Wheels. And um, she's outside of California. And she said, Robin, she said, I just wanted to update, your, to update you on this man. She said, um... I seen I seen your post um, two years ago where you posted about this gentleman that you'd been helping. She said, um, "I just want to let you know he is now in California. He's on hospice. He has probably six months to live, but he does have shelter now. And I just want to let you know that he's off the streets. And I couldn't believe my eyes. And this is the man that I'm out here looking for right now. And I said, "You got to be kidding me." I said, "You're not going to believe this," but his son just sent us an email two weeks ago looking for his father. And so she gives me um, the gentleman's information. She gives me his name, his phone number, his address, and I, I get a hold of his son. I reach out to his son, and his son can't leave his ears because his son also lives in California and only lives miles from this man's home. And yesterday he was going to go see his father for the first time. So, that's a crazy. Um, that's a crazy, wonderful story. Yes, yes, it's just, it's just unbelievable. Um, we also had another story. I can, if I can ask you just one more yeah. question about that. This was a guy, and you live in what state? You live in. I, I live in Illinois. And you saw this guy. Panhandling. In, in panhandling in Illinois, then, a couple weeks later, however long later, he turns up in California near where his son lives. Yes, uh, I don't know how much later. Um, I this was this was almost two years ago. Oh, okay. And okay. Two weeks. Yeah, this was almost two years ago. His son reached out and found our post two weeks ago. Oh, okay. And then this All other right. lady finds the post again. So it's like, in, two years ago I posted this, and within two weeks, not only does the son is the son looking for him, and this lady 
um, sends me a message telling me where where he is, and it was just it was crazy. Okay. Yeah, that is it's still crazy, but that somehow that yeah. guy went was in Illinois, but then somewhere somehow he got to California, and that's where he ended up being in saw hospice. But it's it, it the reunion happened yesterday. Yes. Yes, and it's just amazing. Oh, wow. Yeah, tell tell yeah. the listeners another story, please. Um, we also found yesterday, um, here about three or four days ago, we posted about a man in Florida who is homeless. Um, there is a street outreach there that goes by and feeds them um, every day, makes sure that they're okay. And this man lives underneath an abandoned truck. Um, he's originally from Hawaii. He told um, he's 63 years old. He gets a monthly Social Security check. Well, the other homeless that's in this camp with him um, has beat him up and would rob, would rob him at the first of the month. Once the once the gentleman was broke and didn't have any more money, they would leave him alone for the rest of the month. And come the first of the month, they would do it all over again. Um, he's actually been taken to the hospital because of his injuries. Um, the street outreach was very concerned about his well-being. They were afraid that he was going to get killed on the streets over, over his Social Security check. And they were trying to help him find his family. Um, he gives his family names. They get in touch with me want to know if we could help them. Um, yesterday, his brother in Hawaii was also found, and they are making arrangements as we speak um, for his brother to go out there and get him and bring him back to Hawaii. And how long, when was the last time those two had seen each other? Um, it had been over five years. Oh, my. Yes. That's an amazing so we, story. Yeah. We have loved ones out there. Um, I started doing, I do street outreach here in um, St. Louis. I live 15 minutes from downtown St. Louis, and... We started doing outreach, and I started doing something a little different on the streets. And I started telling my mom's story every week, sometimes to the same people. And I told them, you know, you got family out here that's looking for you and that's worried about you. And if any of you would like to find your family, come and talk to me afterwards, and we'll see if we can't help you. And we have had six of our homeless now come up and ask for help in finding their family. And we have found five out of the six. Um, one gentleman, actually two gentlemen, had been missing over 20 years. Um, the families thought that they they were dead. So it's just, it's incredible. So this is where I say to all of our viewers and supporters, do not give up on our missing. They are out there. You just, it's so unbelievable. The best way to not be found in the United States is to become homeless because you are invisible. No one sees you. No one recognizes you. No one pays attention to you. Do you think that's why, uh, I, I mean, I, this is not, how do I want to put this? You're doing great work, but you know, you've, you're finding like, I guess you work this out to two people a month in the last, you know, roughly 45 people in 24 months and almost is two people a month. That is great results. Yes. are you, do you think you're having these results? Obviously, you're doing great work, but you're also having these results because not a lot of other people are doing it. Is that part of it as well? or um, What do you I think, think so. you're doing differently that maybe other people in the past haven't? Because I don't know of any other people who have had much success as you have had in the last two years. Um, I think that uh, we're bringing awareness for the first time to our missing that that if you have a missing loved one that is um, addicted to drugs or have any kind of 
mental health issues, it may be schizophrenia or dementia or Alzheimer's or bipolar, um, PSD. I mean, there, there are, a lot of them are out here on the streets. I'm not saying everyone, but a majority of them. I mean, you would be surprised at the numbers. Um, even people that's been in car accidents, um, that's had amnesia or brain injuries, you know, they are out here on the streets um, whenever they're, they're, their car has been wrecked and they can't be found and they're gone. Um, they've, some of them have suffered um, brain injuries and they're out on the streets. You would be amazed at how many people are out on the streets that are just lost out here. And I think that we're bringing awareness, but I think that another thing that I've learned, and I mean, we're still using flyers, so don't get me wrong, but when I actually, I like to actually talk to the families and whenever I talk to the families and I get their story and I sit down and I share those stories with their photograph. And it's just, I guess, with me telling the story, with it being their picture, the story comes to life. And it's not just like another missing person that they're scrolling by and, and not sharing. It takes only one second to share. But I've actually done this, and I've done the exact same story, one with a picture and one with a flyer. The picture was shared about 40 or 50 times. I'm sorry, not the picture, the flyer. The flyer was shared 40 or 50 times. The picture, on the other hand, would be shared 150 times. It would be like double or triple that amount. Um, and I was just amazed by that, that the picture is getting shared more than a flyer is. Now, mm. we still share flyers, though, don't get me wrong, but it's just, I'm just so surprised by that. Any insight into that, why that is? Um, I, I think that it brings the person more to life, that it's more of a more of a person than just mm. how somebody else has went missing. And, mm -hmm. and then whenever you talk to those families and get their stories and, you know, they're telling you from the heart and you write those stories down on paper and then you get, you get those stories and you write those stories up on missing homeless, you, you bring that person to life. It's just not like, well, Jane went missing walking home from school today. Well, now you have a story that says Jane's family is really desperate to find their daughter. Um, she loved to play soccer. Um, this, is, this is who this kid was. And we are really needing the public help. And finding this person, that's going to get shared more than the first story. It's just, I think it's all in how you word it. And, and like putting the pictures up there for some reason, they're just getting shared more than the flyers. I've that. And that's consistent. Every, every, you find that every time. Um, I would say most of the time. Yes. Okay. Now we had an interesting conversation. This is something that I think the listeners are going to be a little surprised by. I had asked you what you know. What is one of the hindrances for these cases to be sold, or to be solved? I'm sorry, to be solved. And you said the HIPAA laws, and you touched upon that before in our discussion. Tell the listeners what you mean by that. Um, our HIPAA law is our Privacy Act, and um, it was signed in Constitution um, a long time ago. Um, that it's been revised a little bit, and it's hurt us instead of helped us in many ways. Um, I'm not here to try to change your privacy or my privacy, but I'm trying to change the privacy of the missing. Um, whenever you go missing and your family's out there looking for you, especially um, in cases where, where they're lost out on the streets, the ones that are mentally ill, um, you can go in, even though they are, even though they are a legally missing person with the police department, you can walk in to a shelter. Um, they could be at that shelter, but that shelter cannot tell you because they could lose their job. Um, 
Now, I have been into um, shelters where they let you walk around the day room to see if you see them, but they cannot tell you if they're there. Um, I've had um, that you can go to the hospitals. Hospitals can't tell you anything. Um, I have so many people saying, well, um, send, send a flyer to um, the shelters. Have you asked the shelters? Well, I can ask the shelters all day long and send their flyers all day long to the shelters. But just because I've sent the shelters, they cannot tell me anything. Our eyes are the are our street outreach. And it seems like our street outreach is the only one that that we can actually go to out here for help. Because, because the shelters cannot tell you anything. The soup kitchens cannot tell you anything. It is our street outreach. This, our street outreach are our eyes. The, the people that are out on the street, those are our eyes. And it's just, it's a sad situation. It's hindering so many families from finding their loved ones. I understand about the HIPAA laws and I understand about, I know that it, it's going to hurt, you know, like the woman that, that's been beat up that's been reported missing where her husband's trying to find and kill her. You know, they're, mm. they're set up for instance like that. But what about the mentally ill that's just really lost? I mean, it's just, a, it's, it's a catch-22. It's, a, it's And it's just, it's very sad and frustrating for so many family members. What trouble uh, can these places get in if they break that privacy? What is the penalty? I know it probably varies from state to state, but how serious is that violation? I'm not real sure um, as far as what the penalty would be, but I do know that they will, will lose their job for that. I know that they would get fired and termination immediately. I'm not sure of what other penalties that there is, mm. but I know that it is against the law for them to disclose any of that information. So it's so it's more of an employee thing. They want to keep their jobs. And then on top of that, it's also that there are laws in each state that they have to keep their mouth shut. Absolutely. And it, and it could be I'm not, I don't know if it'd be jail time, but there could be a fine or something like that. Yes. It's really uh, weird how those things work. You know, I think most people, I think your average person, they they talk about HIPAA laws. They understand the privacy and they want that, but then it's weird how then that gets in the way of good work like you're doing right right and it's just it's a sad situation all the way around for for everybody and you know not just for me for the family members there's so many families out there just like me that are running into these brick law i'm sorry running into the brick walls with these simple laws and you know you just want to scream and pull your hair out and you just you've got to keep going you got to find ways around it and i that's why i stress to people so much you know find out who your outreaches are they are all over the united states You've got to find them. They're under different names. I just, I put something on Facebook here, maybe about a month, month and a half ago, asking um, if you're a street outreach, can you put where you're from in the name of your street outreach? And the reason that I'm asking them that is because if we have somebody missing in that area, or um, we want to be able to send it to that outreach. You know, have you seen this this girl or this gentleman on the street? Um, because those are our eyes, and we want to find as many outreaches as we possibly can because that's who's going to help us. Have you started trying to do anything, talk to any state legislature, state legislators about this, about changing that particular part of the law? Is that in the plans for, for, for missing and homeless? Well, it's actually funny that you've mentioned that. Um, I have a lady that works with the healthcare system, and she is out of New Jersey, and she wants to fly down to St. Louis to meet me, and I've actually asked her if they could fly into Chicago, um, Dan lives in Chicago, and that way we can just meet them together. Um, but they want to talk about our HIPAA laws and what we can do to revise them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that 
I mean, you are having so much success, Robin. You are, you know, finding all of these people that I think these people are going to have to listen to you because you really know your stuff. You and your team are doing great work. You're getting results. I think they have to listen to you. I mean, if you can convince them that you could double that number if the HIPAA laws were just changed just a little bit, I mean, that would be a big deal. It would be a very big deal. It would be a very, very big deal for so many families. Um, Like I said, I knew about homeless, but I didn't know about homeless. And there are so many people out there lost. I mean, it's just, it's it's a sad situation. I have a case, um, Jason Diaba, um, his mother um, had sent... I was in California and his mother had asked for help in finding her son. And I got a phone call from, from, um, from a lady in Texas that I'm very good friends with. Um, she runs, um, a page called victim news online. And she said, Robin, while you guys are out in California, is there any way that you could um, share Jason Diablo's flyer? And we get these flyers and, um, I get them ran off and we're, we're passing out my flyers. We're passing out uh, Jason's flyers. Jason's also from Illinois. Um, also supposed to be missing in, in the California area. And also with mental illness. The case was a lot like my mom. We uh, go to California. Um, of course, we didn't find either one. I get back home and I become very good friends with his mother. And we talk on the phone and we're each other's support group. And I said, Get your name off. I said, get the police's name off the flyers. I said, no, this is going to sound crazy. I said, but I put my own cell number, cell phone number on there. And I said, I, I said, do that because if my mom is found and all she has to say is, I am not a missing person. And she gets taken out of the system immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, and with, with our numbers on the flyer, they're going to call us for sightings. Well, a girl seen... She changed the flyers to her to her cell number. A homeless girl um, had seen had seen her son, had videotaped him, had sent the videos to his mother. His mother knows it's him. She she gets a flight to California that's going to leave the very next day. Um, she gets a knock at the door around one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning, and it's the state police. Now she's getting ready to f- leave for the airport here in the next couple hours. The state police letting the, her know that she they, they've just found her son in San Diego, California, that uh, he has been put into the hospital. He didn't even know who the president of the United States was. She flies out to California. She goes to the hospital to see her son, and they won't allow her to see him because of the HIPAA laws, um, because he doesn't want to see her. He doesn't want anything to do with her. Um, he's saying all kinds of crazy stuff that's not true. Um, now she's worried to death because... They only have to keep them for 15 days. After 15 days, they're let out of the hospital back on the streets to live homeless. She goes in front of a judge, and she gets an extension, an extra 30 days. So now he's in there for 45 days. It's an extra 30-day extension. He still won't see her the whole time that she's there. Um, she goes home. Um, now he's in there, and he's taking his medicine like he's supposed to. Um, Jason is now home with his mom and he's doing great. He's doing great, but it takes more than 15 days for that medication to work. Yeah. Oh, I see. Yes. I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying now. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. 15 days and they're put right back on the streets. We're right back to square one. Whereas if it's longer, if it's like 30 days, the medicine then eventually kicks in. Maybe it, 21 days or 25 days 
right. then he's like, well, yeah, I do want to see my mother. Now that I'm thinking right and everything, of course I want to see my mother. But off the medication, you know, yes, he, 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 he just he didn't want to have anything to do with her or anybody else for that matter. Right. Right. Let's, yeah, let's turn this back to your mother now, Robin. Uh, what's the next step for you in trying to find her? Um, I just keep sharing. I keep sharing and praying and hoping that I can find her. We just started a new like page, actually, um, for Dallas, you know, looking for her just in that area. Maybe she's still somewhere in Texas. Maybe she's moved on. I do know growing up that the three states that my, well, actually there was four that my mom really liked to travel to. And that was Nevada, California, Arizona, and Texas. Um, those are places that I know that she's been, um, more than once, numerous different times. Um, but she could be anywhere in the United States. And that's the sad part. And I, it's just like, I don't even know where to look anymore. And all I can keep doing is sharing her flyer and praying that somebody has seen her, somebody knows her and somebody's going to reach out and say, and, it really be her and take a, take a photo, snap a photo without her knowing it somehow, make sure that she has brown eyes and they're not blue. Um, but get the, get those photos to me. Um, and I promise you wherever she's at, I'm going to be on the very next plane out of here. Um, I love my mother with all my heart. And like I said, I cannot make her come home with me, but she sure is going to hear me tell her how much I love her. Very good. Robin, tell everybody where they can find you, your website, Facebook page, how they can get in contact with you. If you have Twitter, whatever you're doing, give your contact information out to the listeners, please. Okay. We have we have actually a Facebook page and we have Twitter. Our email address is missingandhomeless.org. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's not right. Missingandhomeless at gmail.com. I apologize for that. Okay. Um, our... Um, um, our, our, our Facebook page is Missing and Homeless, and it's not A and D. It's the little letter and. Um, you can um, find my mom's page. It's under Claudia Leslie Wells, Missing Person. Claudia is spelt with a C-L-O-U-D-I-A. It's like Claudia instead of Claudia. Mm-hmm. Um, and my name is Robin Wells Burton. You can also find me on Facebook. Um, and I'm just out here to tell the families, if you need help, we're, we're here to help you. Um, as, as best as we can and it's not just us I mean we're out here trying to update the page and put putting new things on the page but it's it's our listeners it's our supporters it's it's all these likes and these shares and these comments each time they they like a post and each time they comment on a post that puts that post back into the news feed um, each time that 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 flyer or picture is shared um, you might not know them but it doesn't mean that your neighbor doesn't know them um, social media is such a great tool it's such a great tool and you know, it's just everybody out here working together. And like a, a friend of mine told me a long time ago, it takes a village, you know, um, it's one person at a time. We're out here to make yeah. a difference and we're all, we're, out, we're all out here doing it together. It's more than just our team. It's just, it's every, it's every single one of you guys. Well, I hope the listeners will try to help you out in some way, especially those listeners who live in California, Arizona, Nevada, and the doubt, I guess, Texas, but particularly the Dallas area, and hopefully, I don't want to say get lucky, but hopefully God will be shining down on one of these people and maybe see your mother. That would be great. That would be absolutely amazing. Right. Robin, thank you for joining me and the listeners on this episode of Unfound. Thank you so much for having me today.
And that was my interview with Robin Wells Burton, the daughter of Claudia Leslie Wells. We started off this episode talking about hope, and I really thought I needed to bring that to the program this week after the last few weeks of talking about not just one, not two, but three young men who disappeared in the Gulf of Mexico back in 1994. And in fact, since Unfound has started, we've covered a lot of very bleak cases. So I thought you needed to hear a story, a kind of different story, where the person who has disappeared is actually still alive. There's proof of that. And then there's a person looking for a missing person who is also spreading hope to other people. What I wanted to try to get across with this episode is that hope is out there, although it's not easy to find. But that doesn't mean that there aren't wonderful things happening in the world of missing persons every day. People are being found all the time. I guess maybe we just don't hear about it all the time. And Robin's situation is a great example. She went from being angry with her mother to finding out that her mother had a serious mental disease to deciding that she was going to find her mother at any cost and then actually discovering just a few years ago that her mother is still alive. And I really believe that Robin is going to find her mother. I really believe that. And either way, she's not going to give up hope. But also the work that she is doing, Robin is doing, with Missing and Homeless, she's spreading so much hope out there as well. Over 40 people reunited in two years. I want to know, is there any police department having so much success? It's an impressive stat. And I think Robin is showing that it doesn't take a ton of money or the law or anything like that to reunite people. All it takes is people who care and people who have hope. A few notes about the interview. I had told you beforehand that there were some facts about this disappearance that were wrong. You now know what those were. Claudia was never in the military. She was never at that VA clinic in L.A. where she was last sighted. She was not getting any medicine there. I wanted you to hear that from Robin herself, and she gave you an explanation as to how that information might have been distorted, and frankly, she's been trying to correct the record ever since. So I hope you will all do her a favor. If you happen to see that incorrect information on a website or you hear it on another program, if some other uh, podcast covers this disappearance at some point, I hope you'll please let that host or website owner know that the correction needs to be made. Also, a listener asked me this past week, somewhat coincidentally, what if a missing person doesn't want to be found? In the case of Claudia disappearing, uh, Robin expressed the idea that it very well may be that Claudia is avoiding her daughter because she thinks that uh, she may be bringing harm to Robin if those two are reunited. And generally, I would say you let the person be if the person does not have a mental issue like it seems like Claudia does. And in fact, Robin gave us the example she knew about of a young man who had some mental problems and he was homeless and he was brought into the hospital. And he was there for several days claiming that he didn't want to see his mother. But once he was put on the proper medication... He was able to say, well, of course I want to uh, see my mother, and that's when we had our discussion about uh, HIPAA laws 
and how hospitals in many of these cases should keep these patients longer than they do. 15 days is not enough, if you remember that from the interview. So to answer that listener's question and to clarify the position given what went on in this interview, if the person is leaving his or her life and knows what he or she is actually doing, is in a good state of mind, as long as they aren't breaking the law, as long as it's not a situation like a deadbeat dad or something, I have no problem with that. But if the person is obviously mentally incapacitated in a, in a situation like we had here with Claudia, I'm going to have to answer this listener's question by saying it just depends. It just depends. Uh, I think that just looking at it from the outside, what I think I know about Robin, what I think I know about this case it seems that both Claudia and Robin would be better off if they were reunited and Claudia got the help that she needed. There's going to be other situations where people leave their lives, whether they're battered women or whatever the case may be. Then, of course, if they want to disappear from that man who is harming them, then, of course, they have every right to do that. The other point I'd like to mention regarding the interview is about mental illness in general. I think we're discovering year by year that mental illness plays much more of a factor than any of us can even begin to imagine in many disappearances. Probably in many disappearances where we dismiss it as something else, a suicide, a murder. And very well could be that those people that we think are gone really aren't. They just happen to be living on the streets now. I'm not sure if there is any stat to support this, but I have to believe that it's true. I guess what I'm saying is if we could get a handle on homelessness and mental illness, we would probably solve a lot more missing persons cases. In fact, we'd probably have a lot less of them. But as long as we can figure out new ways to solve these problems, to solve these cases, like Robin is doing, like she's been doing for the last couple years, then there will always be hope. I thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and subscribe and give Unfound a great review if you could. I'm Ed Denzel, and you've been listening to Unfound.